0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, We're going to start in verse 15. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there might be a Bible underneath you um, or underneath your neighbor. If you don't know them, it's going to be awkward for you reaching under them, but go ahead. It's cool. It's cool. Um, if that's too awkward, just take your neighbor's Bible. Chances are they might be a Christian, and um, they should let you. They might give you your shirt. I mean, I don't know how that works out. But um, as you're looking at, it, I want to ask a question. Uh, well, first off, m- my name's Casey. Um, I'm I'm kind of new around here. Uh, Rodney is in Lubbock. He did a wedding. He's preaching there at a, a sister church in Lubbock, and uh, he uh, let me preach. Uh, which after we're done with all this, you'll be like, man, that was a crazy. A crazy idea to let that happen, but uh, I'm glad for the opportunity. My family, we're just recently moved here, uh, and we uh, moved into some apartments, and my wife and I have never lived in apartments, Um, never, ever, and uh, we just moved our two kids, two daughters, and uh, our dog into an apartment, and uh, they're really nice. It's going well. It's going well so far, Uh, but in six months, we're going somewhere else. Um, But uh, we're we're real excited to be here, uh, to be on staff. Um, as we're looking at Colossians 1 and uh, verse 15, I want to start off with this question. Uh, what are your dreams about? Uh, what kind of dreams do you have that, that are reoccurring, that are present daily? And uh, when I ask that question, we usually kind of go to what kind of dream I had last night or what kind of reoccurring dreams I have. And some of you in the room, you're saying, man, I had that reoccurring dream that I realized I didn't graduate high school and I've got to go back to high school. And I'm at my locker, and I'm opening my locker, and I'm trying to be cool because I'm afraid I might get shoved in my locker. And suddenly, as I'm opening my locker, I realize I'm standing in the hallway in nothing but my underwear. And uh, no, no no one else ever has that dream. Okay, um, I think it means I get anxious. But So you think about the dreams that you might have. Uh, growing up, I had this reoccurring dream all the time. Um, I would be at a Roosevelt... Uh, Elementary. We were the Rough Riders. Perhaps you've heard of us. I'm not for sure. Uh, Roosevelt Elementary. And we had these carnival fairs and I was there and it was time to go home. And all of a sudden I looked around and all the little fair people, um, they're enjoying the fair, fair people, um, they picked up pitchforks and torches and would start to chase me. I had this dream all the time. And so I'm running home and all of a sudden I realized they're chasing me because I'm a vampire. And this was before, like, the vampire thing was cool. I mean, now if a sitcom sitcom is failing, like, ah, put a vampire in it, it'll be fine. I mean, it was before all that. Um, And so I'm running, and I'm like, wait a minute, if I'm a vampire, I don't have to run. I can fly. And so I'm running from the, the villagers, the fair people, and so I start flying, but it's not like flying, like Superman flying, it's like swimming. And so I'm swimming in the air flying this is not me dancing this is me swimming and uh, and i'm going over the trees and i'm going home because for some reason i think that my house will keep the villagers out with their pitchforks and torches and so all of a sudden i'm getting close to my house and i start sinking and so i start swimming harder and so i'm swimming as hard as i can i keep sinking and i keep sinking and i keep sinking i always wait up would wake up when someone grabbed my foot and I'd wake up scared, and I, you know, I, I didn't tell people about that dream because I, <laughs> I'm scared it might mean something about me. Um, I was uh, young and married, and we had some friends over, and I disclosed my dream to my friends. I was like, yeah, we're talking about these crazy dreams. And uh, one of my friends, Austin, he got on the computer... And he typed up like interpretdreams.com or something like that. If you go to that and it's a questionable site, that's not the site. He typed up something else. And so he goes there and he like checks these boxes, running, pitchfork, fire, vampire, all these different things sinking. He checks it and then it like coagulates or that's blood, vampire. We're on that theme right now. It kind of puts it all together and it came out and said, you are sucking the life out of someone. I was like, oh my gosh. I, I had no idea we were going to interpret these things and get real real with each other. Uh, but it was that you're running because you're fearful. You're sucking the life out of people, which made sense. I mean, I was in grade school. I was sucking the life out of my mother at that time. But um, so I, right now, we're, we're not going to share those kind of dreams because we don't want to know what you're doing. Uh, we want to talk about the kind of dreams and aspirations that you think about. The things that capture your thoughts, that when you're daydreaming about what you could do or what you might do, of what your day might be like at the end of your life, what they're going to say, the dreams and aspirations that you might have for your family, or the dreams and aspirations that you have for your career or your group of friends, or the dreams and aspirations that you just have for that day, in that moment, what are they like? Are you in the middle of them? at the end of the day, if that dream or aspiration happened, is it about your fame and your glory or is it about God's fame and his glory? And then I just want to ask this question. Why? Because as soon as I as soon as I start talking about the dreams and aspirations for the day, I mean, when I am daydream even about something like this, I mean, sometimes I daydream that there'd be an incredible response and repentance, and at my shame, it's not for the glory of God, it's that they're like, man, Casey is so good at preaching. He had a funny dream, you know? And so I put myself in it, and I'm taking away from God, or I dream that like terrorists would run in and somehow I'd, like Jackie Chan him, and then they're like, man, good thing we had him on staff, otherwise it'd be a hostage situation you know i think of things like that and all of these things put me in the middle but there are people who dream about what they can do and how they can make god famous and they look at their day and they dream how can i bring god to the center of this And there are people that we read about in in the Bible, and they did the same thing. They looked at conflicts, they looked at difficult situations, and they said, what can I risk that would make God glorious? I mean, think about Saul's son, Jonathan. Saul was recently made king, and he is there, and they are campaigning against the Philistines, and the Philistines hate them and are trying to wipe them off the map and it describes their army in 1 Samuel it says that they have listen to these listen to what they have thirty thousand chariots, six thousand horsemen, troops like the sands of the seashore, and you have Israel outside the garrison post, and within that garrison post you have uh, you have Saul or not Saul, you have Jonathan and he's standing with his armor bearer he says i've got a plan and he looks at his armor bearer he says let's go over there and let's talk some trash to the philistines and if they say climb up this ravine so we can kill you that is god's sign that he has given them into our hands on the other side of the garrison 30,000 chariots 6,000 horsemen and men that number more than the sands of the sea and he didn't even go after the strongest guy. He didn't go after the Navy SEALs. He went and asked the armor bearer, the guy who say, hey, carry this guy's weapon. Don't even use the weapon. And the guy agreed with him. That's a great idea. Let's do that. And so they go and they, they talk trash and they say, come on up here so we might kill you. And they climb up there. And it's, I don't, you know, it doesn't say how it happened. But when you're reading it, you have to picture it. I mean, they've got to get like all kung fu with the spear and the staff. And they start just kind of wiping people out. I mean, the jujitsu chop or something. And it starts this great fear among the camp. And it says that the Philistine army turned on itself and they started to slaughter each other. And you get down to verse 23 and it says, And the Lord saved Israel. They looked at a situation, they had a great dream, and they said, let's do it. And it doesn't stop there. We have other examples. Another example of that would be Esther. Um, Esther is so famous in my house right now. My daughter, Quinn, she's two, she loves Esther. She saw uh, the Veggie and Essie, and so she will pick up, and we read the story. She'll pick up one of the children's Bible, and she'll open one, the first page, and she'll say, Essie, and she'll point, and then she'll say, no, And then she'll turn one page and say, Essie? And she'll say, no. Depending on what children's Bible it is, it could take a while. And so we'll try to take the Bible to kind of hurry it on, but she's into this independence thing right now. And so she'll go, no. And she'll go, me. And she kind of beats her chest like a gorilla. And I mean, we're like, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, and so, I mean, so we'll go through it, and she'll finally get to Esther. She'll c Yes. And then she goes, uh, and that means we have to read it. And so we read it, and I hope it's something that's kind of prophetic on her life. I mean, just a little bit. I don't want her to be in beauty contest, and I don't want her to be in beauty contest and then marry a king after it, although it'd be good to have a king in the family, right? I don't know. Um, but the way that's set up was you had King Xerxes, and he's with all his friends, and the Bible says they were on a seven-day drunk. I mean, it didn't exactly say seven-day drunk, but they had been partying for seven days. It says that in seven days, they were very festive. And so in the seven-day drunk, he sends a note to his wife and says, come, because I want to show off your beauty to all my friends, and she's nobody's fool. And so she says, no way, I'm not going anywhere near you. And so they get together, and they say, hey man, If people find out that your wife's not obeying you, all our women are going to revolt. We've got to do something. So they dethrone her. And so in that, they said, well, how are we going to get another queen? Let's have a beauty contest and we'll pick the most beautiful one. And so they pick Esther. And she is now the queen and she is in the royal courts, And they get word from her cousin Mordecai that there is a plot to destroy all the Israelites. And he says, you have to act. You have to act. It can't, be by, it can't be random that you're here at this time and you have the power and you have the ear of the king. It can't be random. You have to act. And she writes back to him and she says this in Esther 4, verse 16. Go gather all the Jews be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days or nights and I, my young women, will fast also. Then I will go to the king, though it is unlawful for me to do so. And then he says, if I perish... I perish. This ordinary girl found in her circumstances an opportunity to take a stand, and she said, This stand is worth my life. She risked much. But the Bible unfolds, it talks about more. I mean, think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were held captive, taken from their land. And they were more than slaves, but educated in a different system. But they remained true to God. They were strangers in a strange land, in a place that didn't have their values. But they said, we will worship Yahweh only. And edict came, and it came from Nebuchadnezzar himself. And it says, when the band plays, you will worship the image we put in. And they're in a crowd, and the music starts up, and everyone bows down. But not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar and they say, when the music starts, we're going to give you another chance. Bow down or we will throw you in the furnace. And they have a choice. We can bow down and live and defame the name of God or we can make the name of God famous and refuse to bow down. And this is what they say to Nebuchadnezzar. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves in this matter. If we are thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand. But if he does not, let it be known that we would not bow down. They took this great stand, and if you grew up in Sunday school or you've read it, you know how it turned out, that they threw them in the fiery furnace, and they didn't burn up. It was so hot that the guards burned up, and so they were delivered out of it, and God was made very, very famous, but they risked so much. We jump to the New Testament, and we see John the Baptist, John the Baptist had this great ministry of repentance and it's kind of shifted over to Jesus now and he's pointing everyone to Jesus but he has this moment where Herod takes a wife that he shouldn't have. Herod divorces his wife and takes his brother's wife Herodias with just on a side note you shouldn't marry people with similar names to you. It just causes confusion for all the family. I've got a cousin. His name's Aaron, and he married an Aaron. And so now we have to call him Art. But Art is his father because he was a junior. And it's just hectic for everyone. And I don't know who I'm talking to. And sometimes you just got to, you know, count the cost for your family. I, I dated a girl. Her name was Casey for two days. And I was like, I love my family more. I'm not going to do it. And so, I mean, but anyway, so Herod married Herodias. And John the Baptist had this moment. I can call sin, sin. Sin. And possibly be in prison, possibly put to death, or I can just be quiet. And he risked much, and he stood up, and he says, "The marriage that you have is unlawful, and it is sin." And he was thrown into prison, but he wasn't executed because King Herod feared the people, and they knew that they believed he was a prophet. But as the circumstances unfold, it was another birthday party, another party. And Herodias' daughter came and danced for King Herod. He said, I'll give you anything. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he died. And so all of a sudden, all the stories we talked about, they risked much, but it worked out. But all of a sudden, John the Baptist, he risked much, and it cost him his life. And that is the very essence of what we're talking about, risk. And I just want to know this. Why do some people risk so much and some people risk so little? Why do some people hold their career in one hand and the fame of God in the other and they willingly follow the fame of God? Or why do some people look at death and disease and they willingly trust and they have a continence that says, I trust God. And sometimes I'm paralyzed in fear to move forward or to take risks. What, what's the difference? And in Colossians chapter 1, there's some sort of heresy that's going on and Paul never, he never makes it known what it is. But he starts off and right away, he, he kind of comes to this conclusion. A good defense is a strong offense. And if these people see Jesus clearly, if they see God clearly, they will fall in line and their life will be ordered and they will risk much for the kingdom of God. And so in Colossians chapter 1, Starting here in verse 15, he starts off and he says, you need to know what God is like. You need to know what he's like, because if you see what God is like, your life will find order and you will risk much. And so he says this, he being Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so the first thing that he does is, if you want to know what God is like, God sent his son Jesus, who is God incarnate, and he is everything that we need to know about God. And so if you want to know what God is like, you need to look to the character of Jesus. He says, seeing Jesus as a character, it leads us to trust. And so when we take that, we just want to resonate, does the rest of Scripture talk like that? And in Hebrews 1, it says the exact same thing. It says the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so it says if you want to know what God is like and what his character is, you look to Jesus. And so in that, how do we respond to that? We look to the scriptures so that we can know what Jesus is like. And so we take our life, and if we say, if I can trust Jesus, I need to know how he'll respond to me. And so just real fast, if we were going to survey what this would be like, we would ask this question. What would he do if I, if I have a past of, of abusing people? And we see Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He turned his back on his own countrymen for profit. He was a cheater, and Jesus came to him and said, "I want to be with you." And so Jesus, if we want to know what God is like, Jesus says, "I go after people who have hurt others for their profit." And so I can I can trust the character of Jesus. If we look further, we see how would Jesus deal with me if I was someone who was cast on the outside of society because of who I was or what I've done. And we look to Matthew 8 and we see the lepers and one leper in particular, he finds out that Jesus is coming and he goes and he yells to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus comes to him and he touches him and the leopard looks at him and he says, I know you can heal me. And Jesus says, I am I will heal you. I'm willing. And he touches him and he speaks the words and he heals him. And so the character of God is this, that Jesus comes to those that everyone says they are unworthy. We can trust his character. Or maybe you have a past that didn't use people for profit. Or you have a past and there might be abuse in there, but you have a past that if they were to look at your relationships, they would find... Infidelity and sexual misbehavior and all kinds of things. And you're like, man, people don't love me. So how could God love me? In John, in John chapter 8, we see the story of the woman caught in adultery and she is brought and she's thrown before Jesus. And he says, the law says we should kill her. And Jesus starts to write in the dirt and he starts to kind of It doesn't say what he does, but he stands up says, he who is without sin casts a first stone. They all slowly walk away from the oldest to the youngest. And then you have this incredibly tender moment where Jesus kneels down and he lifts her up. And he says, who condemns you now? And she says, my Lord, no one. And he raises her up and he says, go and sin no more. Jesus lifts up the downcast. And so, if we want to know, can I trust God? We look to Jesus and we see his character and it leads us to trust. But the problem when it doesn't lead us to trust is because the image that we have of Jesus is not accurate. The image that we have Jesus in our heart, every image that we would make in our lives, every image that we would have of Jesus, it's probably gonna tell us more that's not true about Jesus than what is true. And so if we picture Jesus and he's like a smiling guy and his hair is blowing in the wind, like beautiful hair like mine. I mean, if we picture him like this, we see the love of God, but we don't see the wrath of God. If on the other side we picture Jesus and we see lightning bolts coming out of his eyes, we might see the wrath of God, but we don't see the love of God. And so it causes causes us to act in one way or the other. And the picture that we have Jesus will indicate how much we will trust him. And so we look to the scriptures to see Jesus. Uh, The great evangelist Tom Skinner, he was a great evangelist that came off the streets of Harlem. He said when he was a kid, he went to Sunday school and the teacher was teaching, but he couldn't get past the picture of Jesus. And he said for the longest time he refused to give his life to Jesus because the picture he saw of Jesus, he looked at that guy and he said, that guy wouldn't last two minutes in my neighborhood. I can't trust that guy. And so the question is, where we don't trust, what Paul is saying is when we see Jesus and his character, it leads us to trust. He goes on in verse 16. And he's going to show us in verse 16 and 17, he's going to show us, seeing Jesus' power leads us to boldness. It says, for him, all. And what you do, if it's your Bible, you could circle all these alls. You go back to 15 and you say he's the firstborn over all creation. And then start circling these because in five verses it says all eight times. And he's trolling the power of Christ. And so it says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He goes on this discourse to show the power of Jesus, that Jesus doesn't just have good character and he's going to invite you in, but he is powerful enough to trust. And when we see his power, it causes boldness. When people come in and they demonstrate power, it leads us to trust in them. It leads us to trust them, right? I, um, I got to know Rodney. Um, don't hold this against me or, or him. Um, we were in a fraternity together. Uh, we were Lambda Chi's at University of Oklahoma. And uh, we were having a dance And uh, one night, and one of our friends, his name was McDaniels, um, he was dancing kind of like this maybe, I don't know, and uh, something happened, and he turns around, and there's a guy in front of him that's about two feet shorter, and so he takes the opportunity, every guy's dream, I'm going to push this guy, and it's going to be a little scuffle, but my friends are going to jump in and break it up, and so then I get to be tough, and so he pushes him, there's a little scuffle, and the guy leaves. What was unbeknownst to him and us was the guy who was two feet shorter was a starting OU wrestler, a starting OU wrestler, his name was Paul, and he leaves. And after he leaves, people are like, you know who that was? I mean, he's a starting OU wrestler. And I am thankful that he left because it was God's mercy that he left without taking like people's arms and appendages with him because he's an OU wrestler. But 30 minutes later, he comes back with four more OU wrestlers. And I was at the door, I was, I was on exec and I was at the door, and I hear some yelling outside. And so I open the door and there's five OU wrestlers who have proceeded to take their shirts off and they're yelling we want to fight every Lambda Kai." and the first thought I had was like man they work out look at them it's incredible <laughs> had no idea it's possible and, and then my next thought as a man my next thought was someone call the cops call the police now we had guys line up at the door we want to go out there we want to fight them. I'm like are you are you crazy are you insane if you are a Division I wrestler, it is not something that you can handle pain and you're good at it. It is not something that you're just strong. It is not something that you even like pain. You love pain. If you wrestle Division I college wrestling, you love pain. When people hurt you, you respond like this, yeah, and you want more. And I'm like, we cannot go out there. They are far too powerful. I'm looking at 70 Lambda Chi's here and five OU wrestlers, and I'm thinking about taking my shirt off and joining them. I want to side with power. I want power to be on my team. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to tell you. You may think Jesus is impotent in your life, but this says all things are subjugated to him. It is not that he is in war with sin and death and Satan. It's that he has conquered it, and it is in subogation to him. He has conquered sin, he has conquered death, he has conquered disease, and all these things work under him. He is powerful. And so when we don't trust and we don't walk in boldness, it's not that we need to tighten our grip and show white knuckles and work harder. It's that we have an unclear picture of who Jesus is and we don't think he can come through for us. And so we retreat back and we trust our finances or we retreat back and we trust our character or our reputation or our friendships or our jobs or whatever it might be. We retreat back because we are fearful because surely Jesus isn't powerful enough to handle this. And so he says, you need to see the powerful Son of God, and it will lead to boldness. And it goes on in verse 18. It says, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, in all things, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And though, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so Paul moves to just another point. He started off, he says, we need to see what God is like, and so we look to Jesus to see what he's like. We need to see that he's powerful. And when we see he's powerful, more powerful than what we hold in our hands, it will lead us to trust him. And then he says, we need to see his great investment. Right there at the end in verse 20, it says, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And it tells us what he did it for. Up in verse 20, he's the head of the church. And so he looks at the church and he sees his bride and he made this great investment. He shed his blood up on the cross for his bride and he defends his bride. And so he's invested in seeing Jesus' investment. It leads us to be his church. But if we always think of the church as a service, something we come and we sing, or we think of church as a building, a place that we go to, we will never risk much. In Warrensburg, um, we had the opportunity to buy a house that was repossessed. Um, The builder was building it and gave it up to the bank, and so it was unfinished. And so we came in and got a builder's loan and uh, started finishing it off. And the city came in. They let us have temporary permanency. Oh, this is going to blow your mind. They came in. At this point, I had put floors in, like we had subfloors before. It was the sheetrock, the electric wind. We had light and floors. We had an open stairway um, that led down to the basement. Open, no banister. And we had a door that went out the back because we had a walkout basement that walked out to 15 feet of air. There was no deck on it yet. And I'm asking, can I move in? We don't have kids yet. And so I'm asking, can I move in? And he says, yeah, we'll give you temporary permanency as long as you fix the yard in 30 days. I mean, we could die out the back door, but we got to make the yard green. And so I'm like, deal. And so we hire a landscaper to come in and he pushes all the weeds and construction waste off. This happens in a day. He comes in, he pushes it off. I come home for lunch and there's new black dirt. Not dirt like here, dirt that you can grow things in. And it's new, black, beautiful dirt. And I go back to work and I come back and he has rolled out grass like carpet. And it is beautiful. And I look at it and I shed kind of a single tear about my yard. It went from total trash to beauty. And I look at him like, you have one of the most fulfilling jobs I've ever seen in my life. Look what you did here. And I I start to worry. I have this beautiful grass and Halloween is coming up in three days and all those little punk kids are going to be dressed up and they're going to walk across my grass and, and I've got to protect my grass. It's like home alone. This is my house. I have to protect it. And so I get stakes and construction tape that says caution. And I stake it around my yard and I put the tape around my house. I clearly have a walkway marked. But the kids, they think it's some sort of haunted house when they come. And so they're running all over my grass. And so I'm answering the door with tears in my eyes. Here's your candy. And, and I was defending my grass, right? I loved it. It was beautiful. What do you think the measure would be of me to defend my grass? Compared to me to defend my wife and two daughters. One, if you hurt my grass, I might cry and I might be mad at you. I might even say bad things about you on Facebook. But if you hurt my wife and my daughters, the investment in that is so much greater. They have so much more value. They are not intangible things. They can just be fixed. They are people. They are the love of my life. If you hurt them, it's going to be like one of, one of those things where I just kind of talk to you like this for a while. I mean, the investment is so much greater. And so he, he says this, Jesus has made this incredible investment in his bride. And as long as we see the church as a building or a service, we will never take great risk or we'll never take great care, much less will we ever go down and help the single mom that lives down our street because we see it as something, not something that we are. And so when we see Jesus' great investment, that he died for the bride and we are the bride and we are his representatives on earth showing the beauty of the gospel. In Philippians it says the beauty of the gospel to a broken and depraved generation. Broken, they can't operate right. They are separated from God and depraved until God's mercy is shown and he shows it through the love of his people until it is shown. They can't even think right. The investment leads us to be the church. And then the final thing we see, and we're going to see how it unfolds in verses 21 through 23. We're going to see this. Paul says, Seeing Jesus as Savior leads us to great risk. If you're taking notes, seeing Jesus as our Savior, it leads us to great risk. Not as our example. Not as something that points to moral right. Someone who saved us. And so look at this description. So that we would see him. First thing, we have to see our sin is wretched. In verse 21, it says, Once you were alienated... You were alienated. It means you were banished. You were pushed out. You had no way of entrance. You were on the outside and you couldn't come in. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. And so we started off and he said, what I want to show is the character of who Jesus is is going to lead you to trust him. Now I want to show you the power It's going to lead you to be boldest. I want you to see what he's invested in because that's going to lead you to be what he created you to be. And then right there he said, because he invested so much on the cross, we have to turn to ourselves. And he says, you are enemies of God because of your evil behavior. And it doesn't stop there. In verse 22, this incredible word says, but, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, Through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus is our Savior when we realize we did nothing to save ourselves and we completely are in trust of him because he makes us holy and he presents us to God and we have great, great need for him. And so we'll start to see him Savior when we see where we are accurately and where we see God is accurately. And so we start to see that our sin is wretched. It goes on in verse 23. And what we see in 23 is we see that this faith that he puts us is something that lasts. It's something that's steadfast. It says in verse 23, If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Right there. He stops and he says, What God does for you when he saves you is it's a permanent thing and there's nothing you can do. It is changing you from death to life. There's nothing that you can do inside of you. There's nothing that can happen to you outside of you that can change what he's done because he's a glorious savior and he saves completely. He doesn't turn his back. In in Romans chapter 8, you can turn there if you want, In verse 28, you'll you'll recognize it. It says, um, For I'm convinced that all these things happen for the good of those who love God. And we use that verse to encourage people, sometimes flippantly. This is horrible, but it's probably going to turn out good. But he starts to build a case right there in verse 28 that continues out. And you get to the end of the chapter, and Paul says this, he says, so if God is for us, who could be against us? And he goes to this case, he says, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor demon, nor all of creation, nor everything below, in heaven or below, could ever separate me from the love of God. And I always just use that verse, those verses, as a perseverance of the saints. But he's stringing together this long argument, and he's saying, I'm convinced that the love of God has no bounds and never turns back. It never, after it saves me, never says it's gone too far and it makes perfect sense if love is not this this force that's out there but love is a person and suddenly we look two thousand years ago and we see jesus christ on a cross and the weight of sin is falling upon him and they have beaten him all night long and they have stripped him naked and they have literally exposed the skin off his back and up on the cross at any time he could have said forget it forget it they're not worth it He could have said no, but he says, I'm going to stay. Jesus chose to stay. And if he chose to stay as the weight of sin and alienation from his father was bearing down, I don't think there's anything that could happen inside of you. I don't think there's anything that could happen outside of you. I don't think there's anything that you could do that would separate you now if you are saved because our Savior is glorious. And he says, I'm staying. That's so different. And so the boldness pushes. It says that we'll be able to stand. And then in verse 23 it ends and it says, when you see Jesus as Savior, when you understand the truth of the gospel, it will be heavy enough to change the way you live. Look at this. In verse 23 it goes on. It says, This is the gospel. This is the good news, that we can know God through Jesus. You can know what he's like. This is the good news. He is powerful and trustworthy. This is the good news. He's made a great investment in you. This is the good news. His love is not something that turns back. He says, this is the good news that you heard and that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul, when he realizes there's trouble in the church, there's some sort of heresy problem or there's some sort of enactment problem. He starts off and he says, we've got to see Jesus clearly. Because when we see Jesus rightly, our life naturally starts to fall in order. And he, he knew this. Because it was about 15 years before that he was on the road to Damascus. And he was persecuting Christians And Jesus stood before him and defended his bride and said, Why are you persecuting me? And he says, Lord, I don't know who you are. And he says, I'm Jesus. And it changed his life. He saw Jesus and it changed his life. The course of his life was changed. The values that he was living by changed. The very direction of everything that he held true to changed. He left a religion that he was growing up in, that he believed saved, but he found the gospel. He says, this is what saves. And so it changed. His friends turned their back on him and pretty soon he was a wanted man. And though he was trying to kill Christians, now he was trying to be killed himself. It changed. It all changed because he saw Jesus. And so Paul, when it comes, he says, when you come to your indecision, he says, when you are standing before that disease, or when you're standing before the bills, or when you're standing before the move that would take you from security, when you don't have boldness, it's because you don't have a clear picture of who God is. And so he describes, if you have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I mean, because sometimes we have we come over because we think like kind of Old Testament, the stories we went through, man, if I take a stand for God, it's always going to work out for my good. And people at the end of the day are going to be like, that's incredible. But we know from life that sometimes it doesn't work out that way. There are people who are martyred. There are people who are beaten. There are people who are alienated because they stand for God. And those people, there's almost a sense that they say it's worth it. They say it's worth it. And so in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, <clears throat> starting down in verse 23, he's confronting this church that he dearly loves, that is being pulled away by, by, by wolves dressed as sheep. They're being pulled away. And he says, listen, listen to me. I brought you the gospel. And he starts off and he says, are they servants of Christ? And he says, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. And he's going to give us a picture of what his life has been like since he came to Christ. He says this, I have worked much harder. I have been in prison more frequently. I have been flogged more severely. I have been exposed to death again and again. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from dangers from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled. I have often gone without sleep. I have known what it means to be hungry. I have been thirsty. I've gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. And he's sitting there and he says, when you see Jesus, I didn't do it because I I, I clenched my fist and and I beat my chest and I worked harder. He says, when you see Jesus, he has more weight when you really see him that he disperses all those other things. And so with your heads down and, and your eyes closed, I just want you to try to separate yourself just for a second. And we just want to ask this, I mean, if you remember just kind of the progression that we saw in Colossians. I mean, he starts off and he says, look to Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. And so we went through and we just kind of looked at his character. And it's just to build this reassurance that God is for you. The cheater, he went to his house, he welcomed him in. The adulteress, he said, he lifted her up, he raised her. The person who was alienated, outcast, he brought him in and he healed him. And so the first is the invitation that Jesus is beautiful and he loves you. And then he moved to the power. And so it brings us to other questions. The first question, will Jesus accept me? There may have been people in this church or people in your family who didn't accept you and didn't go out of their way for you, but Jesus accepts you. And so then the next question, can I trust Jesus? And he brings up two things. First, he brings up his power. And so for some of us, with your heads down, eyes closed, in one hand, you're looking at a decision on one side. There are things that seem to be the safer bet. It's making a move uh, that's going to take me where I'm going to make more money. Or it's making a move that's going to take me where it's easier for me to be accepted. But on the other hand, you have the gospel and you feel God is calling you to take it somewhere else. And so you're trying to weigh which one of these is more safe. Paul says if you saw Jesus in his power and his character, you would side with him every time. And then he moves us just one more step and he says, consider the great investment as he was on the cross. He's invested so much. The business owner works the longest days because he has the biggest investment. Jesus guards his church because he has the biggest investment. It is his bride. It is not a building. It is not a service. It is his beloved wife and we are his children. Has that taken root that in your neighborhood or in your schools or in your job, you are the reflection of the bride of Christ and it moves you? And then the final is, am I trusting Jesus to save me? With your heads down, your eyes closed, uh, the band's going to come in. And uh, we just want to resonate with that. Am I trusting... Jesus and Jesus alone. Father, Lord, we, uh, we love you. And Lord, we look to, uh, when we talk about our dreams, um, Lord, we don't look just far off in the future. We look to tomorrow. And Lord, how could I dream big that would involve you in a way that the people I work with, that my family, the people I go to school with, that the people in my neighborhood, that they would see your beauty. And Lord, they would see your strength. And they would surrender their lives because of your gracious call to their life. And so, a moment of repentance. It comes when we identify what is the thing we're holding in our hand. As Christians, sometimes we get it really backwards where we, we, we trust God with the unseen things. We trust Him with our eternal life. We trust Him with uh, the things that could happen that we don't see. But when it comes to seeing tangible things, like our job or our families or relationships, we grip them and we say, I've got to control this. I can't trust him. Do you see Jesus as someone who has great investment in you and he's great and powerful and he loves you and he's trustworthy? Then we would repent as we slowly open our hands and say, God, I trust you with this. or maybe there's some of us whether we've been in church our whole life um, or this is the first day. We've never known Jesus as Savior. And we have questions and there's a burning in our heart and we want to talk to someone. And as we sing and take offering and we demonstrate our trust with our gifts, um, it would be fully appropriate for you to grab someone, whether it's a leader, whether it's Travis, Travis, Dan um, or me or just someone in your row that you know to be a Christian and just say, "I I need you to pray for me. I am tempted to trust this more than God and I just need you to pray for me. Or I need you to tell me what it means to be a Christian. Father, we love you and we need you. And Father, Lord, I repent. I repent for having small dreams for you and great dreams for me. Jesus, Lord, I am sorry. I am sorry that the mass amounts of my time are directed toward my kingdom and not your kingdom. Lord, I am sorry that I limit the view of who you are with a safe picture, a picture that wouldn't cause me to live in a radical way, and I repent of that. Because when I see your worth, you are far more weighty than anything I could hold in this life. You are far more trustworthy. You are far more powerful. And I am sorry. Lord, in your great mercy, would you draw me in your presence? Would you, in your tender way, start to turn stones in my life to show me what I trust? In your great, great mercy, would you allow me to walk in repentance? And, Lord, would it reflect the glory of your name and the glory of your gospel. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at Stonegate-Church.com.